Hume, Huxley, and Miracles by William G. T. Shedd. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The publication of Professor Huxley's sketch of the life and philosophical opinions of David Hume has again called the public attention to a thinker who has done more than any other modern, with the exception of Spinoza, to unsettle the belief of mankind in the principles of morals and religion. As Mr. Huxley is himself strenuously engaged in this same endeavour, it is natural that he should avail himself of the acute and strong understanding of the Scotch sophist, and thereby obtain a force and momentum for his own opinions which they might not otherwise possess he agrees with hume in the essentials of his system though dissenting upon some points such for example as the following one hume regards instinct as something innate and permanent this huxley believes and with reason to be an admission that might be turned to serious account against hume's own doctrines because if the existence of instincts be granted the possibility of the existence of innate ideas in the most extended sense ever imagined by descartes must also be admitted huxley's hume pages one hundred and eight and one hundred and ten two hume while denying that the proposition that every event has a cause is an axiomatic and necessary truth concedes that the proposition that the whole is equal to the sum of the parts is such huxley regards this as a needless admission page one hundred and eighteen and is undoubtedly correct in thinking that such a discrimination between the two propositions is an inconsistency three hume tacitly agrees with locke in asserting that knowledge is the perception of the relations of ideas to each other pages seventy and seventy one this makes knowledge to be more than mere physical sensation huxley does not like this because it conflicts with the explanation of all knowledge by the molecular motion of matter for hume in the person of cleanthes probably constructs an argument for the being of a god from cause and effect and from order and design in the universe this argument huxley regards as a failure page one hundred and fifty one these are specimens of some of the points of difference and show that huxley goes further than hume in the direction of materialism hume is inclined to linger within the limits or at least upon the borders of deism while huxley feels little restraint of this sort in short this little volume prepared as one of a series of literary portraits for popular distribution is less reserved and cautious in its scepticism than the essays of hume and proves clearly that the materialism of the present moment does not retain so many elements of theism as did that of the eighteenth century and that the unbelief of the english atheism of this century is more positive and unguarded than that of the english deism of the last with this notice of the general spirit of huxley's book we proceed to consider the subject of miracles with special reference to huxley's account of hume this requires us to examine certain positions of both hume and huxley that prepare the way for their view of the miraculous and the supernatural one in the first place hume denies that the human mind is an immaterial substance underlying mental phenomena what we call a mind says hume is nothing but a heap or collection of different perceptions huxley affects to be very candid and says that hume may be right or wrong in this but the most he is or anyone else can prove is that we know nothing more of the mind than that it is a series of perceptions page sixty one but afterwards huxley himself asserts that this collection of perceptions not only constitutes the mind but is a system of effects the causes of which are changes in the matter of the brain just as the collection of motions which we call flying is a system of effects 
the causes of which are to be sought in the modes of motion of the matter of the muscles of the wings page seventy six this is cruder materialism than anything in hume for it is equivalent to saying that the mind is only a collection of physical sensations hume had not learnt the secret of the new physics of explaining all phenomena by molecular motion and would probably have explained his position that the mind is a collection of perceptions rather in the sense in which locke uses the term than in that of hecker maudsley and huxley it is true that his positions if carried out must have led him to the advanced position of these materialists but hume would have hesitated to say so flatly as huxley does that the mind is a collection of mere sensations he preferred the term perceptions this spurious kind of candour shows itself more than once in the book and makes the impression upon the reader that he has to do with a somewhat trickish intellect but that there is no such thing as an immaterial and spiritual substance hume and huxley are agreed in hume's words there is nothing but a bundle of different perceptions succeeding one another with inconceivable rapidity hume left the matter there he does not attempt in detail and by a theory to account for this series of phenomena huxley and those with whom he agrees in opinion attempt this two and this brings us to the second position that prepares the way for the sceptical theory of miracles in order to account for all phenomena both material and mental a postulate is laid down viz that there is but one substance and this is infinite and eternal this substance is matter and matter is full of material forces given matter and material force and everything existing in unlimited space and occurring in everlasting time can be explained matter in motion will account for everything in the universe in matter there is the promise and potency of every form of life says tyndall this doctrine of one substance is the celebrated postulate not proven but assumed of spinoza who is the intellectual father of modern naturalism and atheism to this substance spinoza attributes two properties that are incompatible with each other according to the common understanding and also according to such philosophic reason as that of plato aristotle and kant by the definition of the original inventor this universal substance is capable of both thought and extension these are the two modes of the substance here then is a substance having two diverse sets of properties a material immaterial substance a substance like this contradicting the common judgment that all substance is necessarily homogeneous and can have only one class of properties requires to be demonstrated before it is laid down as the foundation of a system no demonstration however is attempted but the position is treated as axiomatic and the attempt is made to explain the phenomena of the universe by it but since thought and extension are naturally regarded as contraries and incompatible with each other the actual result in the history of speculation is to expel one by the other and the one substance in the end is either wholly material or wholly spiritual the universe is either all matter or all mind the latter view was that of berkeley who while holding the distinction between the infinite and finite mind maintained that there is no force but spiritual force and no reality but spirit there is only one kind of substance but this substance is immaterial this view however owing to its hyper spirituality has had little currency and is favourable rather than otherwise to the doctrine of the supernatural and miraculous because upon this theory mind and not matter spiritual and not physical force is sovereign and controlling in the universe on the other hand the material property in this spinozistic substance composed of double and confused properties may expel the spiritual 
instead of thought driving out extension extension may drive out thought instead of explaining matter by mind mind may be explained by matter this is probably what spinoza would have done had he entered into the further explanation of his system and this is what has been done by that class of speculators who have adopted this premise and postulate hobbes had already done this before spinoza's time he declared that philosophy has to do only with bodies and with him whatever is bodily is substantial the two conceptions are identical a substance not a body is nothing all real processes are material motions cudworth henry moore and others combated this theory affirming the platonico-aristotelian distinction between matter and mind and maintaining the reality of unextended incorporeal substance as well as of extended and corporeal substance the duality of mind and matter and the assertion of two substances of diverse properties incapable of being mixed and confounded in a common base like that of spinoza's postulate was a fundamental position in the system of descartes from whom spinoza borrowed his definition of the infinite substance throwing out descartes's accompanying definition of a secondary finite substance theism represented by leibniz and kant has reaffirmed the doctrine of two diverse substances and pantheism represented by schelling in his earlier system and by hegel has followed spinoza the new physics as represented by Haeckel, huxley maudsley and others is spinozistic and attempts to explain all phenomena by matter and material force the kingdoms of physical nature and the spheres of intellectual and moral existence are all alike founded in the motion of molecules of matter the one infinite extended material substance if in motion in one way will exhibit the phenomena of the mineral kingdom if in another mode of vegetation if in another mode of animal sensation if in another way of human thought and feeling when therefore a man thinks or feels there is no immaterial substance no individual spirit distinct and separate from matter which thinks and feels but there is only a particular series of movements of certain atoms of the one universal substance this is all there is when a man loves or hates blasphemes or prays when aristotle reasons or shakespeare imagines we do not intend to examine the arguments that are presented in support of this theory but to state some objections to it one in the first place this theory attributes self-motion to matter the theorist postulates an inherent motive force with his molecule and he must because he denies that there is any mental or self-conscious source of motion any prime mover one molecule must impinge upon another by its own motivity this contradicts the results of scientific observation and mathematical calculation as recorded in the established and accepted physics if the new physics is correct the old physics is exploded copernicus galileo kepler newton leibniz laplace and herschel represent this historical physics and they all held the doctrine of the vis inertiae this scientific dogma newton enunciates in the beginning of the principia as follows all matter uniformly remains in status quo either of motion or of rest unless it is made to change its state by external causes self-motion is impossible to matter if matter is in rest it will never move unless something other than itself moves it and if it has been set in motion it will never stop unless something other than itself stops it it has been a received maxim in physics that the distance between rest and motion in matter is as great as between non-existence and existence and that matter can no more move itself than non-entity can produce entity 
the whole fabric of physical science rests upon this view and definition of matter and when persons who have so little position in the history of physics as have the maudsleys the huxleys and tyndalls and even the spinozas if compared with the galileos the keplers and newtons the leibnizers the laplaces and herschels ask us to accept their unproven postulate that matter is not characterized by the vis inertiae but by self-motion we cannot help meeting the request with the stare of surprise yet this is the demand they make we must get rid says maudsley of the notion of matter as inert matter is not inert the fact is that the materialist asks mankind to accept a new definition of matter which shall include in it some of the properties of mind he begs his opponent to concede that matter can set itself in motion and does not require a prime mover that it can change the direction of its self-motion and does not need a director of course if his opponents will grant him what he asks it will assist him though it will not help him out of half of the difficulties of his theory but why in the face of all the results of scientific observation in the face of the mathematics of the principia and the calculus of the mecanique celeste should we grant that matter is possessed of self-motion what observer has ever seen the process what microscope has ever detected a molecule in the act of absolutely beginning a motion lucretius long ago acknowledged that atoms do not come within the domain of sense they are invisibles the only possible method consequently of demonstrating the truth of the molecular physics is the mathematical method le verrier proved by the calculus the existence of a planet that had never been seen by a human eye the general system of the material universe required a mass like that of neptune to explain particular motions and aberrations and if the molecular physicists could prove the existence of invisible self-moving atoms by the same method the human mind would have no option and must accept the fact but the existing scheme of the universe the entire astronomy of kepler and newton refutes the dogma the new physics and mathematical astronomy not only have no connection with each other but are in flat contradiction the doctrine of a self-moving matter is utterly incompatible with that of the attraction of cohesion as henry moore long ago suggested if matter were self-moved nothing would hold together flints adamants iron bars yea all matter would fly apart and be dissipated everything would be subject to the caprice of billions of billions of molecules each of which is self-motion at a point the reign of law would be impossible chance must be the ruler of the material universe and chaos would come again but the new physics does not stop with postulating self-motion in matter it also postulates self-direction and choice darwin explains the origin of new species by natural selection within the sphere of matter selection is a choice between one of two or more matter chooses this and rejects that one molecule decides to move itself in this way and another in a different way and the results of the billions of motions in the millions of manners are the varieties of vegetable animal and mental life darwin confines selection to living matter but hecker extends it to dead matter he maintains that inorganic matter by selection and implied rejection produces organic matter the so-called law of natural selection is absolutely universal not only protoplasm but molecules of quartz and flint start and direct their own movements this same notion of a voluntary kind of matter appears also in the frequent phrase accidental varieties these are the unusual varieties which the theorist cannot account for by the common natural selection
ordinarily matter selects in that particular manner which yields a species with its varieties but sometimes it indulges in caprice and then there is an accident the phraseology by which matter is made to possess one of the properties of mind a phraseology never found in the historical physics is the common parlance of the new physics life says Vircourt, is only a complicated kind of mechanics a part of the sum total of matter emerges from time to time out of the usual course of its motions into special chemico-organic combinations and after having for a time continued therein returns again to general modes of inorganic action here are both self-motion and choice certain molecules massed together emerge out of one kind of motion into a different kind and then go back again to the first kind this physics is as fanciful as anything in the medieval physics there is but one step from matter that emerges and returns that selects and rejects to matter that is filled with occult qualities and vital spirits with gnomes in the mineral and sylphs in the gas experiment and observation either with the naked or the armed eye furnish not a scintilla of proof that matter is self-moving and voluntary in its rudiments and yet mankind are asked to believe it upon the mere assertion of a theorist who wants it as a fulcrum over which to pry up all the historical science and the historical religion of mankind the materialist with his new definition of matter will succeed with the mass of men no better than moliere's pretended doctor did with his patron there is one thing says Geronde, which strikes me as not quite clear it is the places you give to the liver and the heart it seems to me that you place them differently from what they are that the heart is on the left side and the liver on the right side yes says scanarel it was so formerly but we have altered all that and we now practise medicine in quite a new way mr huxley when he is reminded that the historical physics teaches the vis inertiae tells us that he has altered all that but whether he will succeed in persuading the common sense of man to believe that matter has some of the properties of mind remains to be seen the theory of molecular motion is the same thing essentially with the fortuitous concourse of atoms by which the ancient atheists leucippus and democritus explained all phenomena and the modern materialist must expect to be asked the same kind of questions by which his predecessors were pestered we will not renew the old inquiry as to the shape of these molecules whether spherical sphere or triangular how many of them and of what figure go to produce a sensation and how many a thought at what velocity they must move to produce vegetable tissue and at what velocity to produce animal tissue there is one feature of the theory however that we do not remember to have seen alluded to it is suggested by the fact that these molecules are related to space their motions must be in some direction the points of the compass consequently will have to be introduced into the new psychology everything depends upon the direction of the molecules and considering the immense variety of sensations and perceptions that are to be accounted for by molecular motion it must be that all and vastly more than all of the thirty-two points of the mariner's compass will come into use the students of psychology by the new method will have to learn to box the compass possibly this explains what is meant when we say of a sulky man that the wind is east with him this hitherto has been regarded as metaphorical language but in the new physics it is strictly scientific two a second objection to the molecular physics is that according to it matter moves mind instead of mind moving matter as is commonly supposed professor huxley states the theory in the following words 
all mental states are effects of physical causes and what are called mental faculties and operations are properly speaking cerebral functions allotted to definite though not yet precisely assignable parts of the brain thought is cerebration similarly maudsley asserts that feelings ideas and volitions are changes in the nervous system and instruments may yet be invented by which such ideas or nerve changes may be measured the genesis of a thought or a feeling then is this an external object impresses the senses these irritate the nerves the nerves affect the substance of the brain and set its molecules in motion and this last affection of the brain substance is thought or feeling or conception or intuition etc mr huxley explains clearly by a bell wire so clearly that a wayfaring man though a fool need not err the effect of the irritation of a nerve fibre on the cerebral substance by which it is connected may be compared to the pulling of a long bell wire the impulse takes a little time to reach the bell the bell rings and then becomes quiescent until another pull is given so in the brain every sensation is the ring of a cerebral particle the effect of a momentary impulse sent along a nerve fibre page eighty seven according to this when a man has the feeling of shame for example the beginning of the process is on the outside of him and not on the inside he does not first have the feeling of shame in a certain centre or subject which we call the mind and which is of an entirely different substance from his nerves and brain and then this feeling passes from the mind to the body becoming sensuous after having first been mental showing itself in nervous and brain affection and finally in that rush of blood to the face which is the corporeal and visible token of shame this is all wrong says mr huxley the first thing in the process is an external impression upon the sense then an irritation of the nerves then a stimulation of the brain fibre then the flush in the face and then the feeling of shame the common opinion is that the feeling of shame causes the blush this is an entire mistake says the materialist it is the blush that causes the feeling of shame it is difficult to believe that such physics and psychology as this could be seriously defended and taught by a person of reputation in scientific circles but mr huxley leaves his readers no alternative in his lecture at belfast he proclaims that the brain is the organ of sensation thought and emotion that is to say some change in the condition of the matter of this organ is the invariable antecedent of the state of consciousness to which each of these terms is applied this settles the matter the antecedents in time may be infinitesimal but it is antecedents matter moves of itself and moves before mind the physical precedes the mental the former is the cause and the latter is the effect this is an old doctrine and it has never been more effectually refuted than in the delicate yet biting irony of socrates in the phaedo when i was young Sebes, i had prodigious desire to know that department of philosophy which is called natural science this appeared to me to have lofty aims as being the science which has to do with the causes of things and which teaches why a thing is and is created and destroyed and i was always agitating myself with the consideration of such questions as these is the growth of animals the result of some decay which the hot and cold principles contract as some have said is the blood the element with which we think or the air or the fire or perhaps nothing of this sort but the brain may be the originating cause of the perceptions of hearing and sight and smell and memory and opinion may come from them socrates betakes himself to the philosophy of anaxagoras for light upon these points but is grievously disappointed as i proceeded i found my philosopher altogether forsaking mind or any other principle of order and having recourse to air or ether or water and other eccentricities 
i might compare him to a person who began by maintaining generally that mind is the cause of the actions of socrates but who when he endeavoured to explain the causes of my several actions in detail went on to show that i sit here because my body is made up of bones and muscles and the bones as he would say are hard and have ligaments which unite them and the muscles are elastic and they cover the bones which have also a covering or environment of flesh and skin which contains them and as the bones are lifted at their joints by the contraction or relaxation of the muscles i am able to bend my limbs and this is why i am sitting here in a curved position that is what he would say and he would have a similar explanation of my talking to you which he would attribute to sound and air and hearing and he would assign ten thousand other causes of the same sort forgetting to mention the true cause which is that the athenians have thought fit to condemn me and accordingly i have thought it better and more right to remain here and undergo my sentence for i am inclined to think that these muscles and bones of mine would have gone off to megara or boeotia by the dog of egypt they would if they had been guided only by their own idea of what was best and if i had not chosen as the better and nobler part instead of playing truant and running away to undergo any punishment which the state inflicts there is surely a strange confusion of causes and conditions in all this it may be said indeed that without bones and muscles and the other parts of the body i cannot execute my purposes but to say that i do as i do because of them and that this is the way in which the mind acts and not from the choice of the best is a very careless and idle mode of speaking i wonder that they cannot distinguish the cause from the condition which the many feeling about in the dark are always mistaking and misnaming professor huxley applies this doctrine that matter moves mind to the will hume had done it before him says hume no animal can put external bodies in motion without the sentiment of a nisus or endeavour this sensation is merely animal says huxley in his comment upon this to the argument that we have a right to suppose the relation of cause and effect to contain something more than invariable succession because when we ourselves act as causes in volition we are conscious of exciting power hume replies that we know nothing of the feeling we call power except as effort or resistance and that we have not the slightest means of knowing whether it has anything to do with the production of bodily motion or mental changes page a hundred and twenty five hume illustrates this last statement in the following words which are not quoted by mr huxley a man struck suddenly with a palsy in the leg or arm frequently endeavours at first to move them and employ them in their usual offices here he is as much conscious of power to command such limbs as a man in perfect health is conscious of power to actuate any member which remains in its natural state and condition but consciousness never deceives consequently neither in the one case nor in the other are we ever conscious of any power according to this a palsied man is as much conscious of power to move his limbs as a well man is or in other words is conscious of something which he does not possess the puzzled reader will find when he examines the context of this singular statement that hume only means that the palsied man understands as much as the well man respecting the connection between voluntary action and the movement of the muscles and limbs there is no principle fact in all nature more mysterious than the union of soul with body if by consciousness we perceived any power or energy in the will we must know this power we must know its connection with the effect we must know the secret union of soul and body and the nature of both of these substances that is to say in order to be conscious of a fact we must comprehend the fact consciousness is employed loosely in the above statement to denote any and all forms of mental experience 
and under cover of this paltering with words in a double sense, Hume denies that man is conscious of a power to move his limbs. This rather staggers Mr. Huxley, who does not commit himself quite so strongly to this affirmation, but cautiously adds, that we do not know and cannot know that volition does cause corporeal motion, while there is a great deal to be said in favour of the view that it is no cause, but merely a concomitant of that motion. Page 125. The reply to this assertion is that the proof that it is the man's will that moves the man's arm is identically the same as that the man exists. The man is immediately conscious that he exists, and he is also immediately conscious that he moves his arm, and that his arm is not moved for him. The evidence is precisely the same in the one instance as in the other, and if the materialist is content with self-consciousness as a proof for personal existence, he ought to be content with it as a proof that the soul moves the body. Neither of these truths can be demonstrated either by a syllogism or by the microscope. The only proof of such propositions is that a man is a real person, and that he moves his limbs by his will. The only proof of such propositions as that a man is a real person, and that he moves his limbs by his will, is in the self-consciousness. And if such testimony is valid in reference to a man's existence, it is also valid in reference to his agency. A mind as ingenious as that of Hume, were there a sufficient motive for so doing, could fabricate an argument against the reality of personal existence, as well as against the reality of voluntary action. In fact, this has been done in the pantheistic psychology of India and Germany. Hegel, by a ratiocination as subtle as that of Hume, and wire drawn into a vast scheme compared with which that of Hume is a mere fragment, endeavours to disprove the metaphysical reality of the individual ego. We pass now to the materialistic theory of miracles for which these views of the relation of matter to mind, so carefully thought out by Hume and reproduced by Huxley and others, are intended to prepare the way. Of course, if there is no such substance as mind, and the only substance is matter and material force, there can be no personal deity, different from matter and above it. And if there is no such deity, there can be no miracle, because a miracle implies an absolute control over matter and a suspension of its laws. The doctrine of a miracle stands or falls with that of a personal god. That Hume held on somewhat feebly upon the deistical idea of a first cause, and even attempted an argument for the divine existence, does not conflict with this assertion. The deist's idea of God contains very few personal elements at the best. Bolingbroke would concede but two attributes to the supreme being, adaptive intelligence and physical omnipotence. The moral attributes have little room or play in deistical theories of the universe. Deism, though nominally asserting the existence of a deity, has little to do with him, and nothing to say to him. Bolingbroke and Hume never prayed. Also, considering the tenor of Professor Tyndall's speculations respecting the prayer test, one would be led to query whether he ever ventures upon the experiment. The first step in the construction of Hume's argument against miracles is to invalidate the proposition that every event has a cause, and the second is to invalidate the testimony upon which miracles are believed. If there be, in reality, no such thing as an efficient cause, then there can be no designing agent, and if no such agent, then no miracle, and if no testimony, whatever is sufficient to prove that the common cause of nature has ever been interrupted, the miracle must take its place with the fable and legend. The connection between cause and effect, Hume thus explains, when one particular species of events has always, in all instances, been conjoined with another, we call the one object cause, the other effect we suppose that there is some necessary connection between them. 
some power in the one by which it infallibly produces the other and operates with the greatest certainty and strongest necessity this is an error says hume there is no such necessary connection between the two events we have only formed the habit of putting the two events together after having seen them occur together many times in succession the first time says hume a man saw the communication of motion by impulse as by the shock of two billiard balls he could not pronounce that the one event was connected but only that it was conjoined with the other after he has observed several instances of this nature he then pronounces them to be connected the knowledge of the relation between cause and effect is not in any instance attained by reasonings a priori but arises entirely from experience when we find that any particular objects are constantly conjoined with each other adam though his rational faculties be supposed at the very first entirely perfect could not have inferred from the fluidity and transparency of water that it would suffocate him or from the light and warmth of fire that it would consume him here one kind of knowledge is substituted for another experience shows in a given instance what particular object is the effect of another particular object in other words which is the effect and which is the cause but this is very different from showing that the effect is necessarily connected with its cause wider experience increases man's knowledge as to which phenomena are effects and which are causes but does not increase his knowledge that effects are necessarily connected with their causes this latter knowledge is a fixed quantity and is no more capable of increase or diminution than is the knowledge that the sum of the parts is equal to the whole adam to use hume's illustration having once found by experience that fire produces a painful sensation having once discovered which is cause and which is effect was as certain of the necessary connection between the two things in the first instance of his experience as in the tenth or ten thousandth custom makes no difference in the degree of certainty respecting the connection between cause and effect the habit of seeing gunpowder explode when a match is applied does not make us more and more certain that the cause produces the effect it should upon hume's theory according to him we ought not to be so certain that the effect follows its cause in the first instance that we perceive the two related phenomena as in the last instance that we perceive them but the fact is that we are just as certain no more and no less the reasoning of hume respecting causation has been replied to so often and the nature of the reply is so well known that we dwell upon it no longer and dismiss it with a brief reference to the inconsistency with which it is associated in his general scheme of philosophy we have already noticed that hume concedes that mathematical propositions are intuitive and necessary truths the sciences of geometry algebra and arithmetic contain affirmations that are intuitively certain man's assent to the proposition that the sum of the parts is equal to the whole hume did not venture to assert is the result of custom and habit it would be too much for human credulity to say that we believe that the sum of the parts is equal to the whole merely because we have in several instances tried the experiment of cutting an apple into pieces and found upon joining the parts together again that they make up the whole apple we are as certain of the truth of this proposition apart from any actual trial and experience the first time that we hear the terms of it as we are the thousandth time custom does not add a whit to the strength of our conviction mathematical axioms hume concedes to be intuitive and necessary truths huxley differs from hume here perceiving that this is a fatal admission for strict and consistent materialism this latter cannot admit any intuitive and necessary truth whatever because it must explain everything by sensation and molecular motion accordingly huxley and his compeers explain mathematical as well as moral beliefs by heredity and custom 
but returning to hume what difference is there in the nature of our mental action when we assent to the proposition that the sum of the parts is equal to the whole and to the proposition that every event has a cause the appeal must be made to the actual facts of consciousness as every man knows them in himself the moral maxim respecting causation dawns earlier in human consciousness than does the mathematical axiom one of the first questions asked by the child is for the cause of what he sees and experiences apart from a theory to support men generally no more think of denying the intuitiveness of the moral than of the mathematical proposition or of explaining the one rather than the other by custom and habit the difference in kind which hume would find between the two classes of propositions requires to be justified by stronger reasons than any that he has presented the second step in the construction of hume's argument against miracles is to invalidate the testimony upon which they are believed hume defines a miracle to be a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity the word suspension should be substituted for transgression in this definition a miracle never violates a natural law but only temporarily suspends it when our lord raised lazarus from the dead he did not reverse the course of nature or upturn any of its settled order this would have been violation one though by no means the whole of the effects of his omnipotent power was to stop the putrefaction of the body christ suspended in that particular instance the operation of the law of chemical action by which putrefaction goes on but he did not violate that law this would require that he should cause the very same law of chemical action that was putrefying the body to put a stop to the putrefaction that is cause the chemical force itself to do the contrary of what it commonly does this he did not do he did not compel chemical action to undo chemical action but he simply put a stop to chemical action itself in that one corpse by the exertion of that omnipotence by which he created all things visible and invisible the imponderable forces as well as the ponderable elements of matter colossians one sixteen our lord left the general course of nature undisturbed another course lying beside that of lazarus would have still continued to putrefy by the law of chemical decomposition which law had met with no violation or reversal of its action though it met with a suspension of it in a single case but practically it matters little so far as the question of power is concerned whether the miracle be styled a violation or a suspension of natural law to suspend would require omnipotence as much as to violate either must be the effect as hume says of the volition of the deity that a miracle is possible hume at first in words concedes but subsequently in fact denies anything is possible that does not imply a contradiction and a miracle does not imply a contradiction the contrary of every matter of fact is still possible because it can never imply a contradiction and is conceivable by the mind that the sun will not rise to-morrow is no less intelligible a proposition and implies no more contradiction than that it will rise miracles are not to be objected to then upon the ground of their impossibility they are possible events what then is the objection to them hume's answer is that they contradict the uniform experience of mankind it is no miracle that a man in seeming good health should die on a sudden because such a kind of death though more unusual than any other has yet been frequently observed to happen but it is a miracle that a dead man should come to life because that has never been observed in any age or country there must therefore be an uniform experience against any miraculous event otherwise the event would not merit that appellation and as an uniform experience amounts to a proof there is here a direct and full proof from the nature of the fact against the existence of the miracle 
There are two fallacies in this quasi-argument. The first is contained in the unproved assertion that the reanimation of a dead man has never been observed in any age or country, or that a miracle is contrary to uniform in the sense of invariable experience, for by uniformity here must be meant an experience without a single exception. A single instance to the contrary would be fatal to Hume's theory. One miracle would be as good as a hundred in logical respects. Mill so understands Hume's use of the term uniform when he explains it by the term universal and defines the universal as that which results from a complete induction of all the particulars. Now, merely to assume, as is done in this pretended argument, introduced by the word because, that a miracle is contrary to universal experience, is to beg the question. The question in dispute is, does the miracle contradict the experience of every individual without exception that ever lived upon this earth? that it contradicts the experience of mr hume does not prove that it contradicts the experience of saul of tarsus that no miracles have been witnessed in scotland and in the nineteenth century does not prove that they were not witnessed in palestine and in the first century in order to be warranted in the sweeping assertion that a miracle never has been observed in any age or country a man must either demonstrate by the a priori method that the miracle is not possible or by an a posteriori method that includes the entire history of man from the beginning up to the present moment that the miracle is not actual hume has done neither the second fallacy in this semblance of an argument consists in defining the miracle in such a manner as to include the point to be proved a miracle says hume is an event that has never been observed in any age or country indeed one would think that this is the very point in dispute between the parties to take it out of the dispute in this cool manner and put it into the definition of a miracle which is to be accepted by both parties alike is perhaps ingenious but hardly according to the rules of discussion mr hume certainly presumed very much either upon the simplicity or the good nature of his christian opponents this circular mode of reasoning by surreptitiously putting the thing to be proved into a preliminary definition has recently been repeated by mr spencer in his definition of evolution as the development of the homogeneous into the heterogeneous the question between the creationist and the evolutionist is whether the homogeneous mineral ever does develop into the heterogeneous vegetable or the homogeneous vegetable into the heterogeneous animal and if this definition is accepted mr spencer may spare himself any further reasoning and so might mr hume if his definition of a miracle be allowed the question whether a miracle has ever occurred cannot be decided by definition and in an a priori manner it is a proposition in history not in geometry it is a question of fact and must be decided by the examination of testimony the thing itself is possible as hume in words at least concedes whether then it be actual depends upon witnesses strictly universal experience would involve an experience embracing all the physical phenomena upon earth from the beginning of human history it must be wider than the experience of the great majority of men it must include that of the minority also the minority here as in politics have some rights which the majority are bound to respect the question of the miracle cannot be decided by a majority vote the induction of particulars must be exhaustive in order to demonstrate the incredibility of a miracle it is not sufficient to cite the experience of the disbeliever and his contemporaries when however it comes to the subject of testimony for the miracle hume retreats to the a priori method 
he did not like bauer and strauss enter into an acute and learned investigation of the historical data furnished by the new testament and the literature of the first two centuries and endeavour to invalidate the testimony hume never examined the witnesses themselves he took the shorter method of postulating that a miracle has never been observed and of retracting his previous concession that a miracle is possible when he comes to speak of the subject of testimony for a miracle he falls back upon the notion of impossibility no testimony he says is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavours to establish this rules out testimony altogether the real meaning is that there can be no testimony at all for a miracle for there can be no testimony more miraculous than a miracle and if there were the scepticism that had demanded a yet more miraculous testimony for the miraculous event would require a yet stronger kind of proof for the miraculous testimony itself and so on indefinitely in the extract which we have already given upon page twenty five hume frames his statements so as to establish the intrinsic impossibility of a miracle in the first place he defines the miracle as an event that never has been observed and then adds to this the assertion that any event that has actually been observed evinces by this very fact of sensuous observation that it is not a miracle the miracle consequently cannot be established by the testimony of the senses it never has been seen and if it could be seen this would prove that it is not a miracle such reasoning is like that of the advocate in defence of his client first the defendant never borrowed the kettle secondly if he did borrow it he returned it the a priori impossibility of the miracle lies under all the ancient and all the modern scepticism this is the axiom to which all classes of unbelievers in one form or another really come back this is the position of huxley as may be seen from his remarks upon hume's views the lurking assumption notwithstanding the verbal concession of the possibility of the miracle really is that the miracle is impossible there is no testimony sufficiently strong to justify human belief in the miraculous huxley writes as follows if a man tells me that he saw a piebald horse in piccadilly i believe him without hesitation if the same person tells me that he observed a zebra there i might hesitate a little about accepting his testimony if however my informant assured me that he beheld a centaur trotting down that famous thoroughfare i should emphatically decline to credit his statement and this even if he were the most saintly of men and ready to suffer martyrdom in support of his belief indeed i hardly know what testimony would satisfy me of the existence of a live centaur page one three two he thinks however that the testimony of johannes muller the great german anatomist would stagger him and lead to suspension of judgment and if some competent investigator should write a careful monograph giving measurements and diagrams he might possibly believe in the existence of a centaur a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still and a sceptic will hold out a long time against very respectable witnesses and testimony but we think that if five hundred englishmen at once a number equal to the five hundred brethren at once alluded to by st paul should see a centaur trotting down piccadilly and should testify that they did and their testimony should go unchallenged by the remainder of the english nation as that of the five hundred brethren was by the jewish people and mr huxley should refuse to credit them the common judgment would be that he was not so much a philosopher as he was an obstinate simpleton this scientist to employ the bad english that now designates a certain class of investigators thinks that it is a very difficult thing to credit the existence of such a combination of man with brute as the centaur is but he finds no difficulty in tracing the origin of man back to a brute and believing that he can be developed from a jellyfish 
if he can swallow this camel one would think that he need not strain at that gnat indeed if evolution in spencer's definition of it is the truth there is no knowing what may happen in the universe and the materialist must be ready for anything for if the homogeneous can be transmuted by a merely natural process into the heterogeneous then evolution may as easily descend as ascend the animal may return to the vegetable and the vegetable to the mineral man may develop into an ape and the ape into amorphous protoplasm and protoplasm into inorganic matter this would still be the homogeneous becoming the heterogeneous it is impossible upon this theory to calculate upon fixed and uniform action in the physical world and mr huxley if he lives long enough may see stranger phenomena than a centaur or even the gospel miracles lucretius objects to the doctrine of creation ex nihilo that it introduces confusion into nature he erroneously supposed the doctrine of creation to be incompatible with the old accepted dictum omni animal ex ovo if fishes and men he says are created from nothing and do not spring from living germs or eggs then fishes may start out of the ground and men may originate in the sea everything might originate out of everything si de nihilo fierent ex omnibus rebus omne genus nasi poset nil semnie egeret e mare primum homines e terra poset auriri squamigerum genus et volucres now this is exactly what may happen if the different kingdoms of nature are related to each other in the manner asserted by the new physics if there are no fixed limits to them as the historical physics maintains but all are merged and blended in the manner claimed by evolutionists then the grain of sand may develop into a sperm cell and the nilotic slime into plato's brain and back again with procession and retrocession forevermore if this is so the evolutionist ought not to find the biblical miracles so difficult to credit if this is scientific truth there are stranger things ahead in infinite space and everlasting time than have yet been seen even in palestine and by the jewish people and there are more things in heaven and earth than have been dreamed of in the materialist's philosophy extremes meet nothing says pascal is more credulous than infidelity the intellect of kepler would find it more difficult to accept the physics of hecker than the gospel narratives and this brings us to the true reply to hume's assertion that the miracle contradicts universal experience viz that there is valid testimony that it does not contradict it christendom for eighteen centuries has had in its possession a mass of historical documents and data which ninety-nine hundredths of christendom in all these centuries have regarded as proving that miracles have been wrought in the world and have been seen by some of its inhabitants the nature of this evidence is not mathematical but like that for ordinary events in human history it is possible to dispute and disbelieve it as it is possible to dispute and disbelieve the evidence for the assassination of julius caesar assent to the testimony for the miracle like assent to the testimony for events in ancient history generally cannot be necessitated like assent to a geometrical axiom the contrary of all historical events be they ordinary or extraordinary is possible but the preponderance of evidence and the probability is so great that the mass of mankind believe the events of both sacred and profane history both the miracle and the ordinary historical fact this reply brings the sceptic out of the province of sophistry into the province of history and invites him to examine the witnesses for the miracle and to prove them to be false witnesses if he can this is a different kind of work from specious and artful ratiocination it prohibits the use of the a priori method in the province of history where it does not belong and compels the objector to employ the 
a posteriori method or the induction of facts in a case where the only question is one of facts that hume knew little of such investigation is notorious johnson says that hume acknowledged to a clergyman in the bishopric of durham that he had never read the new testament with attention and what did hume know of the nature and force of the testimony for the credibility of the new testament that comes from a score of writers christian heretical and sceptical of the first three centuries to say nothing of the monumental and other evidence that enters into christian apologetics in proportion as the history and literature contemporaneous with and immediately succeeding the advent of christ is studied does a man's belief in the credibility of the new testament increase but if he neglects this kind of study altogether and bends his mind to the invention of a priori reasons against miracles he will be able to make an infidel of himself if not of others if the witnesses to a fact are not listened to and their testimony is not examined of course the fact to which they testify is liable to be denied especially if there be any motive for doing so and this is the course which infidelity generally has pursued hume and voltaire are examples neither of them was a student of biblical and patristic literature both passed a judgment without an examination of the testimony we could not say this of the recent german infidelity as represented by bauer and strauss here there is scholarship in this direction unquestionably a scholarship which has elicited a scholarship in reply that has strengthened the old defences and established christian apologetics upon a yet stronger position but it is not at all extreme to say that in respect to apologetic learning the english deism and the french atheism of the eighteenth century were characterized by downright ignorance the biblical and theological articles in diderot's encyclopedia and voltaire's dictionary are notorious for their superficiality and incorrectness the blunders of collins were exposed by bentley those of tolland by clark and lardner and those of bolingbroke by bishop newton the same remark is true of the current materialism such exclusive attention as huxley maudsley and tyndall are bestowing upon matter leaves them no time and no inclination to contemplate mind if the soul my dear alcibiades is ever to know herself must she not look at the soul and especially at that part of the soul in which her virtue namely wisdom resides and which is like herself a man who holds one eye to the orifice of a microscope and keeps the other closely shut cannot see anything beyond his nose and his knowledge must be confined to a very small circumference he may be able to tell us how many scales there are in an inch of a fish's skin and how many fibres there are in a spot on a butterfly's wing but such minute physical inquiries as these leave him no time or taste for higher and grander matters this very book of huxley on almost every page displays ignorance in the nobler departments of human knowledge his judgments respecting the deeper problems of philosophy and theology are crude and worthless he misconceives descartes and does not understand kant he knows absolutely nothing of metaphysics in the sense in which plato aristotle descartes and kant employed the term he knows physics and supposes that this is metaphysics the spurt to use a boating phrase which physical science for the last decade has taken in the direction of materialism will come to an end as in previous instances because of this ignorance of higher themes the human mind cannot long be content with the minute observation of the five senses helped by instruments it will reassert its origin and its dignity and leaving the things that are seen and temporal begin again to contemplate the things that are unseen and eternal End of Hume, Huxley and Miracles by William G. T. Shedd